You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. We are here, we are recovered, and we live in color. Welcome back, everybody. This is the fourth episode of We Live in Color, and I'm so happy. I would say this is a guest, but this is Converge Family. Regardless of whatever work they're doing from boxing to educating our youth to building and protecting our community, this person has been showing up as opposed to being there. (laughs) With love, I have Nikita Oliver. How you doing? What's good, family? I am so excited to be in space with you. And I'm also so glad to hear recovered. Recovered. Yes. We got to take care of ourselves. You, gotta, you have to you have to say it. It's been such a it's been such a path, but I'm I'm appreciative for community. Yes. When you actually just authentically let people know where you're at and they meet you there. Yes. Thank you for modeling that. Yeah. I think it's hard for so many people to yeah. say what they need when they need it, especially if it means taking a break. So I feel like as black community, we just grind nonstop. Right. So I appreciate you. It, it felt good to be like, we'll be back after these messages and then come right back, but back with power. So, with the glow. Right, with the glow. You see this glow in the <laughs> Ross, you know? Here for it. But I'm, I'm here. I'm here for it, but I'm so here for you. I mean, the work that you have done in community, we this could be a four-part series, y'all, but we're going to have to break it down, right? But I want people to know a little bit more about you and your why. So tell us a little bit about like growing up, because you grew up in the Midwest, right? I did. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. And, uh, you know, I've started telling people like some real about how I came to Seattle, because I think there's an assumption that I have always been politicized or always been radical. And uh, when I moved here in 2004, uh, I voted mail-in because I went to Seattle Pacific University. They they need to get their stuff together right now. They're having some issues. Okay. Um, Hashtag get it together, please. Get it together. Uh, So not claiming, but just saying. (laughs) That's where I arrived to. Um, And when I voted in my first election, my first presidential election, I voted for Bush. In, you need, hold on. Wait. Yes. Sorry. I think there's something wrong with, her, with the yes. mic. You want to check the mic? You voted for who? I voted for Bush. I voted Republican in 2004. Was that Bush Gore? Bush Gore. I think it was. I can't remember who the Democrat was. But what I can tell you is I grew up in a very religious family. Um, I did not grow up in a political family. And in the Midwest, you just you hear uh, kind of a a silo of messaging. And so luckily or not luckily, my vote didn't count that year. That is still how I voted though. Okay. But see, at least you're being honest. I think it's important to be honest because um, there is some assumption that conservative folks cannot arrive at also being abolitionist or being anti-capitalist. You know, this is not something I was, I was born into. I did not come from a political family. And so being at Seattle Pacific University as one of very few black students, I would actually say I radicalized very quickly. And that's how I became politicized was sitting in an environment that was majority white, majority wealthy folks. uh, And, and, and in many ways, uh, very closed mind, except for one class that I took. I took a first year Bible class where the professor talked about 
how the Bible had come about to be the Bible we know now. And I just started to have these intense revelations. And um, that was the beginning of a very drastic shift in my political views and my worldviews. Uh, and I want, so, you know, I want people to know we start at a lot of places. Yes, we do. And so over time, um, within the first year of being in Seattle, I was volunteering at Aki Kurosi and Graham Hill Elementary School. Uh, I was a tutor through Urban Impact. And within the first year of being there, I was brought on to help run the tutoring program at the Mekong Learning Center at Graham Hill Elementary School, which really started to spark my passion for educational equity and just noticing how in this school that has a monastery program or at the time it had a monastery program, the monastery program was mostly white, wealthy young people. You and then not to cut you off. Can you explain a little bit more to community what monastery yeah, programs are? Monastery is like, um, it's a very explorative curriculum that allows children to decide what they're interested in as a means of how they're educated. And so it's not so constrained to a curriculum. It doesn't have the same expectations that many of our young people are subjected to. It really is this idea that uh, a child's interests matter in their education. Absolutely. And so you allow them to play, you allow them to explore. And in that program it was mostly white and wealthy young people. And in the rest of the school, were the black and brown and indigenous youth. Okay. And this was, you know, I had been exposed to this growing up in Indiana, but being in a position where my job is to help young people do well, I was like, this is messed up. And so it really um, catapulted me into thinking about educational equity, uh, asking questions about how are black families and black children not served in this system? And what do we need to be doing differently? Um, over time, I ended up becoming a chaplain at the youth detention center. I don't think most people know that. Oh, I, wait, wait, wait. Yes, wait. a chaplain. Amen. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Ashe. <laughs> right. You know, I, I was actually on the path to ordination when I first moved to Seattle. I'm ordained too. You're ordained uh, yeah, as well? I, I'm ordained. Yes, I, Reverend. Amen. Minister Deontay Damper. <laughs> I got it during the pandemic. <laughs> I know that's right. You got it online. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. I'm about to officiate a wedding, so I shall also right. be venturing to the online. $140? Never mind. Sorry. Yep. Don't tell the secrets. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was working as a chaplain at the Youth Detention Center, and I was sitting with this young person, and this is how I became an abolitionist. Uh, they had been in and out of the youth jail since the age of 12. They were 17 at this point. Both of their parents were in federal penitentiaries. They were in kinship care, which means their grandparents were caring for them. And uh, in order to make ends meet, they started stealing things because they could see that their, their grandparents didn't have access to the resources. And they were sitting there telling me their story, sharing with me some things they had realized. And I said, they looked at me very seriously, very deep in my eyes. And they said, Nikita, I'm institutionalized. 17 years old. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they told me they did not believe they could live outside of a jail setting, that they didn't have, they, they wouldn't know how they would eat, how they would go to school, how they'd know when to get up and go to bed. And I had this immediate moment of being like, wow, we are damaging our children. Nothing about this is rehabilitative. And it really, you know, catapulted me once again, these big moments into um, the work that I do now. Right. So even and I, and I have to ask you this. Right. Um, and I know that as you were advocating for no, no, you jail. Right. There was I remember there were some community members who we can call elitists. Right. It was like, hey, wait a minute. 
this isn't necessary. How did you go about continuing to navigate throughout that process? Because I mean, it's like, I know that we, we have this thing sometimes in community, like going against the grain, it, it, it goes, it, sometimes <laughs> it goes down, right? But yes. your persistence, like the, just explain a little bit about that for me. You know, the first thing I have to say is it's been a team effort. It's been a yeah. community effort. And I have originally I came to this work as an artist, as a cultural worker, writing poems about the things that I was seeing. And that's actually what brought my voice into the public sphere was using the, the medium of spoken word poetry to speak truth to power, to talk about the hurt and the pain, but to also vocalize the transformation. And so through a huge community effort with No New Youth Joe that started in 2012 uh, because of um, a young woman named Dee Dee, because of youth undoing institutional racism, because of WISH, which was a Washington-based group that was opposing incarceration throughout the entire state, um, folks started to come together asking this question, why would we spend well over $130 million, which ended up being $300 million on a facility to incarcerate children, predominantly black children, right. um, knowing that the school to prison pipeline is a real and very damaging thing, rather than spending that money on things that we know our families need, building housing, making sure people have access to economic opportunity. And so asking that question became the seed to a, a an eight year long struggle. And even though the youth jail did open in February of 2020, right before the pandemic started, I would say that King County was drastically changed by just asking the question, why don't we spend these dollars differently? How is this not racist? Yeah. Uh, and how is this not harmful? And so as community continued to grow, uh, I think more and more voices continue to rise up. and. When you get to 2022, we're having an election where one of the major conversations is abolition. Right. So I have to give a lot of props to that movement, a lot of props to movements that came before, like the Black Prisoners Caucus. So many of our loved ones who have been incarcerated are now being released after doing organizing work inside. They were a major part of the work that we did as a part of No New Youth Jail. The village was a part of that work. Um, and so I guess what I, I really want to instill on people is it wasn't me. Um, I think we just have to grapple with colorism. I'm a digestible voice, mm -hmm. even though I say things that I know piss people off. Um, and it's like important that I am constantly saying this has been a community effort. It has taken lots of black community members, lots of indigenous community members, lots of young people, lots of queer and trans and disabled youths who have been impacted by the school to prison pipeline, you know, sharing their experiences and doing this work. And as we continue to build movements, we have to continue to bring people in. Yes. And building people in, we will. Now, when we come back, I just want to talk to you a little bit about you running. What was it like running in the areas of running for mayor? And we'll be talking to Nikita Oliver right after this break. You're watching We Live in Color with Deontay Damper. y'all know that August 13th and 14th, that's a Saturday and Sunday, from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Pier 62, Waterfront Park. 
it's going down. We got the Madaraka Festival 2022. This is an event that's free of charge for everybody. So pull up, bring your family, bring an appetite because we're going to have food. Bring an appetite because we're going to have live music. African culture is going to be on showcase. The boy is going to be performing on August 14th. Uh, that's the Sunday event. Uh, y'all pull up. It's free of charge to everybody. We're celebrating African culture, African diaspora. It's going to be a lovely time. I'm looking forward to seeing y'all. Holla at me. And we're back to We Live in Color. We're here with Miss, sorry, family, Nikita Oliver. See, I be, see, even me as a community member, I mess up on the pronouns, but you got to get it right. We're working on it, right? You got to pull back. I like that immediate correction. Yeah, it, like, I it's a like, practice. It's, it's a practice and it's hard. And you know, sorry, as we're segwayed into, into like that, how hard is it? Have you ever had to correct people in the areas of your pronouns? What is that? You know what I think a lot about is, uh, so in 2017, when I ran for mayor, I was using she, her pronouns and was very much on a gender journey. And I see all these materials where, you know, folks are like black woman. And um, I have a level of discomfort with my own past visibility as I have grown into being, being able to be open and honest about who I am and where I'm at. I find how my gender shows up on a daily basis to be very fluid. You might catch me one day and some kicks and a button up and be what we traditionally think of as more mask, though. I don't think clothes have a gender. I'll be real. Um, And other days might show up like this. Um, And so it's, it's been a complicated journey. Yeah. Um, Even with my family, you know, my family is still in the Midwest um, and they're like, they, them, and so I'm constantly <laughs> explaining. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, I've had to correct people. Yeah. And it was wild during this last election when I think my pronouns were used in some ways to, to mock me. Mm-hmm. Um, they were put on one of my opponent's mailers. And I think that that was to trigger more conservative community members who are like this pronoun thing. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it is complex, especially when you're having your gender journey in a visible way. Yeah. And you've been doing it for almost, I moved back home in 20, I believe 2017. So you had, I think you were just starting to run. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first and time I ran. What was that journey like for, what, what was that journey like? <laughs> you know, I had the benefit in 2017 of being a little bit naive okay. about how people move in political spaces. Now I'm not going to say I was naive about my political values or that we as a campaign were naive about our policies, but there were just so many things that shocked me about um, what people do during an election and what they do right after an election. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't decide to run on my own. That was not it. You know, I wasn't like one day up, like I want to be a politician. <laughs> uh, in fact, I did not want to run, uh, but we were holding a number of community circles with elders and young people and organizers and artists right after the 2016 election where 45 was elected. And we were trying to figure out at a local level, what do we do? We're going to have a hard time changing things at the federal level in that moment. But we knew that this next local election was coming up. It was going to be a big deal for an executive office. There were a number of um, city council seats up and us getting involved somehow 
was an opportunity to help bring people out of like the lethargy that that less that last election put folks into. And so after holding circles and asking folks what they want to do, we had this long list of people to run. We thought we were going to run a whole slate uh, of, of every office that was coming up in our local area. And then we realized <laughs> how hard it is to run a campaign. Right. Um, and my name came up a lot and I had many, many conversations, honestly, full of tears of being like, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to run for office. Uh, but listening to our aunties, folks like Auntie Ayan, Auntie Mary Flowers, mm-hmm. Auntie KL. Um, Shout out KL. Yes. Love you. Auntie Cindy Domingo, Velma Valoria, Sutapa Basu, like so many elders who before, long before I was even thought of, were doing work, um, kept giving me their blessing. Yeah. And I was like, how can I not listen to these folks who I say have wisdom? And so I committed to it. And that first election was almost like there's something miraculous about it. We were tired. We were worn out. We barely had a budget. We didn't hire staff till June. Uh, we were the team of 12. Sometimes people called us the gang of 12. Mm-hmm. Kind of racist because it was all black and brown people. Yeah, um, <laughs> but but we we were grinding and there was just such a sense of joy, though, and purpose. And if you look at all the events we threw during that campaign from community listening posts to the primary night event to our launch, like it was always full and overflowing with an excitement about building a community grassroots movement. And I had this moment of being like, OK, politics sucks. But building power in community, using electoral platforms, because elections happen so frequently, mm-hmm. there's an opportunity there. An opportunity I've seen, right? There were so many. And I think one of the things about your campaign is just like you have, you were kind of like, to me, you just had all a jack of all, you were like the jack of all trades. Like you did different things in community, like from boxing to, to spoken word. And it's like, I'm a community person first, you know what I mean? Then comes this politician S, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, what was it like for you after that election? Taking, taking, taking what people will see, other people might see as an L, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, still coming back in and still working with um, the, the, the Seattle the People's Party. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. You know, I feel like we won in so many ways after that election. Um, no, we did not get the seat, but there was a palpable energy. We had a well over 200 person uh, community listening post to make some next step decisions at this spot in the in the Chinatown International District. And it was so beautiful to have people from every district in our city sitting in circles with each other, mm-hmm. talking about what do we do after this election? Usually when a candidate loses, people don't have any more energy. They're tired or they um, become so disillusioned. But people had a real fire yeah. in them. And that was exciting to be a part of. And honestly, it was humbling to be a part of because it was a constant reminder. This is not about you. Yeah. This is about us. And I feel like that helped uh, it was like some sugar to help the medicine go down of the various frustrations, because right after that election, there was like everyone telling me to endorse Carrie Moon and yeah. like you owe it to us. And um, I just didn't feel like I had the relationship with her to make an endorsement where if there was some stuff she was doing, I didn't agree with when she was elected. Right. That I could sit down with her, call her on the phone and be like, hey, 
not good, not cool. Like, let's make it, you got to do differently. And I feel like we owe it to our communities to be responsible with our social capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then we hosted the debate between Jenny and Carrie and there were 500 people in the room what? at a church on Beacon Hill. And we really got to move forward a community agenda in that moment. And it showed me how powerful we can be when we come together with a shared vision, not a, not a party. This wasn't about a party. This was about a shared vision of what our community needs to be and what it can be. And it's not been perfect since then. You know, it hasn't perfectly catalyzed. It hasn't though, but yeah. at the same time, the movement that happened from from when I, I would say at least from 2016 on up since I've been back home and, and hearing back at home, like from community members about what was going on while I was gone, about how we weren't asking for a seat at the table. We were building our own. We were holding people accountable. We were looking at what happened to gentrification and was looking. And yeah, we blamed some of the politician, but there were some politicians that were black that we had to hold accountable for that too, so right? Hard. So it's like all of those things were all the things to lead us up to 2020. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. Take a breath. <laughs> we ain't taking no break yet. So <laughs> but I, I, I want you to, if you could, like, walk me through on how how were you during the chop? I will say the chop era. Right. Yeah. And you I know, still, quite frankly, I still think we're going through the chop era. So absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't I don't think that ended. Yeah. Um, honestly, 2020, the end of May 2020 through the end of that year. Well, it reminded me of 2014 uh, when the non-indictment of Darren Wilson came down. And I was in the streets for six weeks while trying to finish law school. I remember studying for evidence at a protest while serving as a legal observer because I felt like the revolution was about to happen. And I was like, why am I going to be in this law school and the revolution's about to happen? Now it didn't. And then 2020 happens. And... I will never forget being downtown the day of that first protest and everything that was happening. I mean, it was just, it was both a level of chaos and also community uprising that I had not seen in my lifetime. And I once again thought <laughs> the revolution is about to happen, but in a totally different way. Here we are all afraid of this deadly disease. And as black and brown folks, some of the most susceptible to get it and not have access to health care um, and to have to work because many of us are essential workers. There's a economic recession that is happening. There is a racial justice uprising and um, a lot happening around order workers organizing something we had not seen since the 1960s. Yes. And so if history told me something, I was like, this is a time to grind. And. In that era, I would sleep at Washington Hall in my office okay. so that I could be available for legal support 24-7. Um, I was constantly in meetings with people around mutual aid networks that we were building, whether that was grocery support or support to our loved ones in DOC or partnering with families that needed things. Um, and then I was still executive director of Creative Justice while we were trying to run at the time, my co-director was Aaron Counts. We were trying to run uh, distance virtual programming, which we had never done before. How do you run an arts program virtually? Then during the pandemic, then at the same time, these kids are going through trauma. We're going through trauma. Right. Um, and there was also the, the, the complexity of, 
I didn't necessarily view myself as like in the chop as much as I viewed the chop as a place many of us would go to know what was happening in the streets. And as the media would have it, as narratives would do, they wanted to create who they thought was the head or was this thing or that was that a lot. And constantly pushing back against right. that of being like, no, this is decentralized. Right. And I don't remember, but Boots, you know who you are. <laughs> it's going to look at the screen and just bring in Boots back. back. <laughs> <laughs> just rewind it back. But yeah. That was an interesting time. Yeah. Yes, but was. I'll never forget June 3rd when we put out a call on the internet, June 2nd and at 11.30 p.m. at night. And then uh, showed up at Cal Anderson at 1 p.m. on June 3rd. And we had our demands, uh, defund SPD, invest in black community, and free all protesters. And 12,000 people showed up overnight to march. And getting to City Hall as people are cheering and chanting. And we were invited in and we were like, cool, come in if we can live stream because this isn't just about us. Right. We need transparency in how this is going down. And then being denied entrance on fourth and having to walk up fifth mm -hmm. and how everyone just started chanting Black Lives Matter. There was so much power in the streets that it did shake political spaces. Yeah. And so I never want to deny the power of protesting, of economic disruption, but also the importance of that being connected to policy and advocacy and connected to those who are most impacted by situation. There's been a whole ecosystem of things that have been happening for many, many years um, to make 2020 the year that it was on all sides. Now, let me ask you this. Uh-oh. <laughs> If you were the mayor, what would you have done differently? That's a fair question. Yeah, yeah that's all speculation. But, yeah, but, you know, I think I would have been out in the streets, too. Right. I'm a black person. Right. And um, I think that our electeds failed to show up with passion and empathy and a commitment to do something different. There is no denying that policing in the United States is racist. There's no denying that racial capitalism is real. There's no denying that King County Jail is full of more black people than any other community in our county. And yet we're only 4% of the population. Preach. These things cannot be denied. And so um, I think it would have been important to meet with people in a transparent way. We have so much access to live streams and the capability to make sure things are accessible. There's a whole room in City Hall built to live stream conversations. Yeah. So nothing had to be backdoor. And in fact, I think everything needed to be as transparent and accountable as possible. And I can say there wouldn't have been no missing text messages on my part because okay. that instills a distrust on all sides in the system of people we say we voted to represent us and not yeah. complexities there. Um, but I think how you show up with people and then follow through on what you say, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. But I want to just make sure that I shout out yourself, Converge, Eric, and oh, definitely in Joey Wise. Shout out to my boo Joey Wise. Cause all the live I'm telling you, I was literally street. like I was still having to work. <laughs> and like I literally would just subscribe to y'all every day, every hour on the hour. And Joey, Joey, you know how to hold a camera, love. We appreciate you and respect your allyship. We Christina. Yeah, you know, there were so many live streamers yeah. that showed up and I do have to give props to Amari and Converge because they 
popped in the streets. Absolutely. Like almost immediately and stayed there after many, many traumatizing incidents over and over. Right. And I have so much respect for that because they didn't sugarcoat the story. They didn't try to change it for their own narrative where you would have other media come out, get a couple shots, put it on the nightly news and, but Converge showed up and didn't, didn't filter your stream for you. You could yeah. make your own decision about what you saw. And I think that it, in the world of journalism, that's powerful. Just some humility in journalism. Mm. You know, one of the things about it is, cause I mean, we're, we're talking about the pandemic and, and how were you, how, how was your family impacted back at home through the pandemic? Like, I, know, I mean, I know you have family here, but what was that like for you through the process? You know, I think the biggest impact for me was in December of 2020 when my dad passed and um, having to make the decision of when do I go home? Because I couldn't spend time with him. He was really sick. So even if I had gone home during the pandemic, there was always the risk that I would bring something home to him. And when he he went into a coma and I had to I had to decide. I had, I had to keep asking myself, do I spend the thousand dollars to go now? Do I spend the thousand dollars to go now? Do I spend it to go now? And I'll be real with you. Part of my impetus for moving back to the Midwest, I never want to make that decision about my family again, any family member. I want to be able to hop in my car, drive home and be responsive. I think the pandemic for me with my family, as hard as certain things have been, showed me I don't want to be so far away in such a way that I can't get back when I need to. Yeah. And I think that was the experience of, of my family. Um, my, my mother went months without seeing her grandchildren. Um, and in the midst of the protests, some of the only news she had access to was, was what was coming up in the Midwest. And all she could see was Seattle on fire. So every day I was getting a call, like, are you okay? Are you safe? Um, which, you know, media, dang, y'all can't be having parents right. <laughs> scared like that. Um, tell the truth. And so, yeah, there were a lot of impacts. My mom works in a call center. Um, my stepfather uh, was owned a cleaning company at the time that cleaned hospitals. Wow. So, you know, really trying to figure out how to take care of workers and take care of himself. Um, I had multiple family members transition. It was just, it, it was such a devastating time. But what I know is, it was not just a devastating time for me. Right. So when I think about some of the turmoil I see in our community, I know people are in pain. Absolutely. And I feel like one of the transitions we have to make, and you started with this when you got on here, I'm recovered. <laughs> yeah. We have to transition to a real commitment to healing. And in the work that we do at Creative Justice, that's something we're centering for our staff, with our young people, for our organization. Because as, as Black people, we go through so much trauma all the time if there aren't places of healing and places of joy alongside the protests and the advocacy and all the other work we do to try to get our communities to liberation, we won't get there because we won't know what we're trying to get to. Right. So that's, that's what COVID that's a taught whole, me. That's a whole word. So <laughs> I got to high five you on that. Now, when we come back, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about, we're going to talk, let me look at the camera. We're going to talk a little bit more about, we're going to talk about Nikita and Nine. We're going to talk a little bit about what's in the future. I want to hear a little bit about that creative justice. And from, from what I hear, you can throw them hands. So I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about that, too. We'll be right back. We are Living in Color with Deontay Damper here at Converge. <laughs> 
So if you're still sitting down, you are on a long thing. We're going to eat your love rice. We're going to chop like we're going to oh my god, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Don't touch it. My factor twins, my brothers, you'll see them tomorrow. Check them out on Converge Media. Now, what was you saying during the break? I have to, we, I got to get that. You know, you got me with a little reflection uh, when you asked me that very hard question. If you were mayor, what would you have done? In retrospect, I'm actually glad I didn't win. Okay. Um, 2020 cemented in a heavy way my commitment to abolition and more importantly, my commitment to building structures and community that really generate safety, thinking about what creates safety. And I think... Um, Something, I, the, the conflict of interest, the internal conflict, I would have had being the chief of police boss. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I, I don't know what I would have done in that moment. And what I've been able to act in true commitment to my ideals, uh, in true commitment to my policy analysis, and in true commitment to the community that has raised me up. You know, those are all three different things. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. And I would have had to have compromised. I would have had to have made a choice. And I just think that in some ways is the name of the game in politics would have been an issue had I won city council, though. I think it's a much more manageable issue. That's the legislative branch. Um, There are nine voices instead of one. And so, yeah, I really reflected actually in that moment when other people were like, well, I wish you were mayor. Part of me was like, I'm actually glad I'm where I'm at right now. I'm glad I'm here with you. (laughs) <laughs> yes me yes i'm That's glad i'm real. here with you right now that is so real you know and, and and you know and beyond the the abolitionist work that you do like i didn't I, well i just found out a couple of well i was being nosy on the gram and you box i do box you box i started boxing in law school <laughs> okay because law school is terrible and how was how was that for you what was that was that a great outlet and it was such a needed not just an outlet boxing helped me uh, see my body with an element of joy. Okay. Like my body can do fierce things, which I didn't, I had not believed before I started boxing. In fact, uh, you know, I was the kid in the family who was like, come to my musical, come to my concert, you know, come watch me read a poem. Mm-hmm. And so I was not the athlete. The rest of my family's athletes, they play basketball, they run volleyball track. Um, I was not an athlete. Mm-hmm. I am an athlete though. Okay. And so I discovered that with boxing that I had a lot of potential. So in 2019, I did my first tournament in Canada, uh, which was really exciting. And I lost my first match, though arguably I should have won. She turned her back to me three See, times. They keep on messing up Nikita you know? during these battles now. Stop yeah. playing with her. She was 19 though, about five foot ten. I think I was in my 30s already, five foot four. So, you know, it was an interesting match, but I won my second match uh, by TKO. 
uh, 20 seconds into the second round. Okay. And so. All right, Tyson. Um, yes, let's go. OK, but, you know, boxing has really helped me see my body as a space of strength, um, as something valuable in a world that, to be honest, as a round uh, person, we don't be getting that love. You don't be getting that love. No, you know, not the way I deserve it. Okay. okay. <laughs> what kind of love do you deserve? Uh, the kind that nurtures and protects and honors and asks for consent. Yes. Say, say it one more time. Ask for consent. Okay. It's sexy. Yes. Yes. Right. So. Yes. <laughs> Message. Message. <laughs> So I, so I loved. Okay, so I got the boxing, but I already knew that you. So I, I know that after years, you are leaving creative justice. I am. After How seven many years, years have you been a part? Like seven years. Oh my god! The a lot, work of, that you lot of people during elections don't believe I have a job. Oh. I think I think people think George Soros pays for something for me. George Soros does not fund me on anything. Nothing. I work at any given time. Six jobs. Okay. Um, six jobs. Six jobs. This city is expensive. Yes, it is. I got loans to pay off. <laughs> and I thought, thought one day I would buy a house. But when the median housing or medium cost of a house is a million dollars, probably not here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, creative justice, I started as a mentor artist. I just worked one. I was I was really only supposed to be there for one session. And Aaron Counts, uh, who has helped found a number of incredible arts and cultural yes. organizations. Shout out to my bill, brother, Aaron Counts. Yes, brother. Aaron Counts. Shout out. Um, and he he invited me to to stay as the advocacy manager at that time. And I had just finished law school. I was finishing my master's of education. Um, I had one quarter left and he was like, do you think you can manage working here and, and finishing school? And I was like, yeah, like this is my dream job. Arts and culture, healing engaged space, dismantling school to prison pipeline, building restorative justice spaces. Like I could not have imagined a better job out of law school. And so went from advocacy manager to advocacy director to co-executive director to executive director. I mean, I've done every job in the organization. Um, and now it's time to transition because I think when orgs have their original staff yeah. and their founders, they can lose their connection to the grassroots and become just about the figurehead. Right. And we have an incredible staff, mostly black and brown women, uh, as directors of the organization, you don't see that often. Um, we have so many young people coming on a regular basis who are literally negotiating their own truces so they can be in space together. Young people who otherwise in the streets would be beefing, but have decided this is a safe space. This is a place they want to be. So they are self-organizing themselves mm -hmm. to make sure it stays a safe place. And that is for me is why I started doing restorative justice work in the first place. Not so that you know, I could be an activist, but because I wanted our community to have the tools to heal harm, to stop harm, to prevent harm before it ever happens. And I'm seeing young people doing that work every day at Creative Justice. And I, I'm thrilled, I'm humbled, I'm honored, I'm sad to leave, but I know that that space is going to thrive because we have the right people in place. And one day those young people are going to be the ED and the directors mm -hmm. and the mentor artists. I mean, they're already talking about it as I'm leaving. A couple of them are like, I'm taking your job. Yes, you are. What is your biggest joy? What's been your biggest joy here in Seattle? If you can think of a moment. My biggest joy. Honestly, it's my people. 
I, I keep I actually keep a small group, a small close group. I know most people think I have a lot of friends, but yeah. I have a close crew and um, they. I could not ask for a better group of people. They are radical. They're political. They are loving. They know how to joke. You know what? They talk hold, mess. hold on one second, because, you know, this is where we got we live in color tribute. Right. So if we can pull that up. So this is a great time. Who's the, the squad? The squad is. is this is the squad. It's uh, Roby Free, who you saw on the Madaraka Festival commercial. Um, Yin Yu, Darzell Touch, Bana Ibera. And these are folks who, you know, through thick and thin, we've hung on. Like these are folks I've, I've definitely had fights with. Okay. Big ones. <laughs> and yet somehow we still come back together because we are committed to these, these relationships in a real way. These are folks I practice restorative justice with. When we have complexities in our relationships, we will hold a circle. Like we're not playing around. Like we're not just talking about circle practice. We're literally practicing it in our friend group. And I don't have any other folks in the world who will sit down in a circle to figure out how can we better care for each other. Um, and that, that both gives me joy. And sometimes it terrifies me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Shout out to Rail. I'm trying to remember this. I'll never forget the march, the MLK march. And we were all coming from, I think it was somewhere down this block. And I'm trying to remember the song because he got a song and I'm still, I want to say, is it Flashlight? What is it? It's something. He got a lot of songs Man, now. He put out Rail, an album every three out, months. You got, you got a song that I like. And I always say it to you when I see you, but uh, listen. Bless me. I know it, the album came out in 2020, but but either way, um, I just remember that moment. And you, I mean, one thing's certain, two things for sure we don't talk about enough is what kind of artist you are. So you do a lot of poetry. Do you sing? I do sing and I rap. I'm a musician, play guitar, piano, grew up playing viola. Okay. The viola? <laughs> the viola. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to, I wanted to play cello, but the orchestra lady was like, Mm -mm, your family can't afford to rent a cello. <laughs> you take the viola. Yeah, nobody wanted to play viola, so it was the cheapest one. And I was like, dang. But it turns out the viola is a really unique instrument. It has its own clef. It gets all the notes that the that no one else gets in the symphony. And I mean, that's, uh, you. that's you. That's you. That's the read. We learn how to play in multiple <laughs> uh, clefs. So you know, it, it fit me. Yeah. It, it was the right. It was right. Even though she was doing it off some. Classes mess turned out right. Okay, you gonna be mad at me because I didn't actually do this before. But can you give me a little poetry? Just a, just a, just a little. Give me a little snippet. So I'm, I'll give you a little something from uh, a song I did with Relby Free called Nia. Nia means purpose, and uh, we're gonna be performing it at the Madaraka Festival on Saturday. So come through. Here's the intro. Sometimes it's so confusing living in between. Brushing up against what's unseen while it's punching me. Though my purpose goes beyond floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee, I know it's hard to see. Warrior blood on the ground, rows of concrete, tear up these streets, our greatest power being naturally. As we are who we be, grow with purpose, we build and we grow. For the children we owe, a world we don't know before the seeds that we sow and the tears that we cry, water the lost souls of time, reclaim and reroute. And what we know is truth, the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice, pull from inside more than our skin. It's the culture and vibe. We on a quest. We come from a tribe. Our hope won't subside. We are the moon and the tide. We ebb and we flow. 
for the purpose of life, to love and be loved, to love and be loved, to love and be loved. I'm going to need that to be the theme song of We Live in Color now. <laughs> that was good. Now, where is this event at? It is, uh, I think it's at the pier. The pier. It's gonna, we're going to be out in the beautiful pier. Okay. The waterfront. Come out. Let's make it real black. Real, real black. Now, I'm going to have to get, I think we just had a commercial actually on it. But we did. We'll, be, we'll have one more commercial and we'll go over some events. And I have to ask Nikita, what is her why? What is their why? We're watching We Live in Color here at Converge Media. And we're back at We Live in Color. This is Deontay. And now we're about to go over some events. What you got going on in the weekend? I'm going to tell you. Let's go to the first one, bro. So right now, Pacific Northwest Black Pride, we are kicking off starting next week. We need vendors, food vendors, LGBTQIA community members get a discount on vendoring out here at the event. Please feel free to email me. We got the Google form that should be in the chat that should be coming shortly. Um, again, POCAN, Pacific Northwest Black Pride, that is the 18th through the 20th um, location should be on the flyer. And feel free to email me if you have any questions. The other event that we have all right now, but this weekend, this very weekend is Al Beach Pride. Nikita, are you going? I I feel really put on the spot right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go, well, you can come with me to one of the events, but either way, it's a three day event. We got my girl, my girl, Kay, the paint lady. Um, I appreciate all the work that Stacy and her wife does in this community, continuously trying to uplift queer folks let alone when a when a when a black queer person is in leadership some people run silent but we need to start showing up especially out there we need to start supporting alki beach pride saturday is actually the beach event um hosted by i know dom is going to be there i have to relook at the flyer again but please support alki beach pride it is in the chat um and i love you guys so here we are here we are we are ran towards the end we made it. But I know most people don't know, but you are leaving us. You are leaving the town. I am leaving the town for a town in the Midwest. For a town in the Midwest. And we are saddened by that. But I want to ask you, what kind of legacy, what legacy do you think you left here in the space of Seattle? Is that a fair question to ask? You know, it's such a wild question to me because uh, I'm only 36, so... I don't feel like I have a legacy. You do. Um, but if there were anything to say to that question, honestly, it's the young people that I've had the opportunity to build with for the past 18 years. I have known Jarrell, uh, Rel B. Free, since he was 12 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and our relationship, you know, at one point in time, I'm his mentor, but now he's 30. And I would say we're comrades, we're friends, we're family. And um, Creative Justice held a going away party. Some of the youth performed their music. They gave me a, an Adidas jacket where they all signed the back of it. And some of them told stories. Um, they made me cry. Mm -hmm. But when I hear young people say, what they want to do, what they're going to do, what their vision is for themselves because they've had an opportunity to dream about it at Creative Justice. That's the legacy. That's the goal at the end of the day. Um, and I can't wait to come back and see what all of them are doing, um, whether that's going to school or having a family or running Creative Justice or working a job because for some of them, that is a a step, you know, and we're all about acknowledging steps. And so I'm really humbled and honored to have gotten to be a part of so many young people's lives. Yes. 
That's you know, legacy. And, and we appreciate that. And one of the, and a, another di- di- diaspora of community that you've uh, reached to is a lot of our queer community members, hence the show. Is there a message that you would love to leave our community members, uh, our LGBTQIA community members, Black? <laughs> yes. <laughs> black. Sorry. I would just say we're not a monolith. Right. Being Black and queer, trans and non-binary, gender diverse, it doesn't have to show up in any particular way. That's the whole point. That is the whole point of breaking the gender binary. It is the whole point of being able to be in the relationships we want to be in is that we don't have to show up in some categorical way. We're not a monolith. And I think that's my biggest lesson to be quite frank from Seattle um, is creating more space for the beauty that is all black people, all black and queer people, all black and disabled people, all black and wonderfully round people, you know, all black women, black femmes. We need to be creating more space for us to all be able to show up more honestly as who we are. That doesn't mean we won't have disagreements because I'll be real, the disagreements are real. It also doesn't mean we have to harm each other or throw each other under the bus. That's a lesson I wanna take with me as I move back to the Midwest, because to be quite frank, I'm moving to a hella black city and I'm excited about yeah, it. Okay. But I want to learn that lesson. Yeah. That we're not a monolith and we should have room to show up as who we are and as we need to. And that is a beautiful thing. It can be a complex thing. And we need to be willing to sit in that complexity. Amen. Yes. Sorry. This is the most high fives I've ever done on this show. Now, before we get out of here, I just want to thank you for not only you, this is you're not a guest let out you are family in this space uh we appreciate the work that you've done here advocating protecting and building for all of us for our youth queer people who look like me and thank you for living in color so we can learn how to we thank appreciate you. you it's all love fam now brothers and sisters we will see you in the next couple of weeks or maybe even next week because you know what Pocan got Pacific Northwest Pride so we'll see what's going on in that space I want to thank y'all this is episode four that's a lucky number okay thank you you were just watching We Live in Color with Deontay Damper here on Converge Media baby have a good one good night Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences our coverage is raw transparent and objective praised by community leaders government officials and residents support Converge Media today via Venmo Cash App or PayPal at Converge Media.